Hi, I'm Dr. David Rosenblum. I'm a chiropractor in upstate New York. I've been in practice for 36 years. I have a biomechanical practice, and I'm here on the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast. My biggest pet peeve about the profession of chiropractic is the warring factions that have developed between the traditional chiropractors who believe in hands only, spine only at the extreme end, and the chiropractors who integrate other modalities and interventions into their practice. The war between these two factions have crippled chiropractic over the years. Calling out the myths, misinformation, and BS in the wellness industry. This is the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. Here's your host, holistic pharmacist, supplement expert, Big Mouth, Dr. Neil Smoller. Broadcasting from the most famous small town in America, Woodstock, New York, it's time to take your medicine. Time for your weekly dose of skepticism, truth-seeking, and clarity in the health and wellness industry. Today's future conversation is two for the price of one. What of value, I know. I'm talking chiropractic care with two of my favorite chiropractors, Dr. David Rosenblum and Dr. Jeannie Tartell. And the reason we're doing this is because I'm a skeptic. I admit it all the time. I read lots of content around pseudoscience and chiropractors get thrown under the bus quite a bit. And I'm conflicted. You know, I've worked with chiropractors for years. I know people love them. They have a higher quality of life. They feel better. And not just from that physical side of things, but many of them, they just are healthier. They become healthier people working with chiropractors. Some of my earliest supporters and advocates were chiropractors. So I asked my friends in here to talk through all of this because, as with most professions, there's some maniacs out there. So I asked them today, are the maniacs representative of the herd? Are the anti-science claims that are made by skeptics representative of the real daily practices of chiropractors? And we had a nice little conversation around that. What exactly is a Cairo anyway, and why do we need to prac them? All right, that was my attempt at a Mitch Hedberg joke, but I will stick to supplements. Anyway, so I invited my friends on here to speak to the criticisms. We warned them in advance. I was going to ask them tough questions and be critical of chiropractic care, just like I am with conventional medicine and their myopic nonsense, or like health food stores and their hypocrisy, or unlicensed charlatans out there spouting their nonsense in the natural product industry. So I was just going to go tough on them like I do everybody else. But before we get to that in the conversation, I have a little confession that I want to tease out here. This weekend, I overate. It's not my fault. It was mostly peer pressure, I swear. At the end of today's show, I'm going to tell you this gruesome story, not just to kind of brag or complain about how many calories I ate in one sitting, but because there's some health advice around it. So stay tuned for that. Remember to share the podcast with friends. There's lots of topics that are getting re-rotated because the stuff we do is evergreen, man. We're talking about some basic stuff, nothing really too timely. So the sleep podcast is getting lots of kicks these days and the bone health is moving up again. So make sure you check out some of the old episodes if you haven't heard them. The review thing, I love it. Keep giving us the the thumbs up and the five stars and all of that fun stuff. Write a nice little note for us. We need to see those words on the paper. That helps out a lot. And if you want to look at any of the other content that we're creating, you can check out woodstockvitamins.com slash learn, and our, all of our blog content is there for now. We're going to move it in the future, but it's there for now. So on to our feature conversation. Dr. David Rosenblum is a 36-year veteran chiropractor with a practice right here in the Woodstock community. 
Dr. Rosenblum is the founder and president of Sport Tech Fitness Labs, a tech company devoted to testing and development of physical fitness in the healthcare setting. He's taught nationally for the National Safety Council, and he's been a guest instructor at the Russell Sage College Department of Physical Therapy. Dr. Rosenblum's got a really interesting story about how he got into chiropractic care and how he first learned about it. It was mostly firsthand experience because he was in a motorcycle accident when he was 18 years old. And with him today is Dr. Jeannie Tartell. Dr. Jeannie Tartell is a licensed chiropractor and registered nurse who's been practicing for over 30 years in the New York City and Kingston, New York area. She's the author of Get Fit in Bed, Tone Your Body, Calm Your Mind from the Comfort of Your Bed. Now that sounds like the workout that I could get used to. In a number of ways. Nyuck, 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 right? No, okay, anyway. So let's get into it with these two seasoned pros about chiropractic care, and let's address some myths and misinformation. So I want to start off by saying that um, I am doing this not to pick on chiropractors. Like, so just so we're clear about this. In fact, one of the reasons I wanted to do it was to try to tear away some of the misconceptions. If you look at the skeptical parts of medical care, chiropractic normally gets hammered on pretty hardcore. And in my opinion, I believe that I don't care how people get their wellness done. You know, I like the idea that chiropractors are registered and recognized by the state. So then if they are being jerks, then they can be held accountable to it. So, um, so chiropractic care in my eyes has a real great place from a, a holistic care wellness perspective. Um, as long as the person is being responsible and then as long as they're registered, I think that, you know, they're, they're, it's kind of a win-win for, for patients. So that's just me kind of setting the thing because I'm going to ask some questions that come up a lot when people ask or talk about chiropractic care. So um, just wanted to let you and the listeners know that. Okay. I'd like to change your, um, what you're saying about registered to license because there's a difference between being registered and licensed. David, I know, has a whole list of of hours and statistics of, because I see that in his hands. But in order to become a chiropractor, not only do you have to be licensed on the state level, but in order to sit for your state exams, you have to be licensed and certified on a national level. So it's not just about being registered. It's literally about being licensed as a doctor would be licensed or a pharmacist is licensed. So I like that word better. I you know, would certainly agree. There's a certainly a distinction in this country between uh, clinicians who are registered and clinicians who are licensed. So like, let's talk about who's a clinician that's registered but not licensed. Some therapists. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so registered in, in what way? So they're registered with like a state registry, but not... They may be registered with a group or a, their own community. Got it. Where they're not literally licensed. They don't have specific courses and hours that are mandated in order to be licensed. So, licensed. The, so the fear is more along the line that people are using the, just like they misuse holistic care, they're misusing the term registered is what the fear mm-hmm. is. Okay, got it. So yeah, and that's kind of what I went for. And that's funny how that that actually is a discrepancy. I, that's what I meant is that they're, they have to be licensed with the state uh, to be a, become a registered practitioner with the, the state, but they can use the term registered to, you know. I mean, there are people who do manipulation Mm-hmm. who have never been taught manipulation, who, have, who are not licensed to do manipulation in the state of New York, in this community alone. There mm-hmm. are people who claim to be chiropractors who are not chiropractors. So they'll, they'll say that they're chiropractors or they say that they're doing manipulation? They'll say that they do chiropractic-type services. 
Wow. Or very frequently they'll say, I do osteopathic manipulations. I'm not an osteopath, but I do osteopathic manipulations. I'm not a chiropractor, but I do chiropractic adjusting. And we make a distinction between those two interventions. Um, so, but that's, you know, that's true anywhere. Well, hopefully not for pharmacists. Uh, yeah, I'm just, well, you know, the street pharmacists have been competing with us for some time. But I think the big pharma one on the opioid front, they definitely outsold the drug dealers by by a, a multiple, right? So, so, so yeah, so this is kind of, I, I feel like it's kicking over something. Like just even the idea of people out there faking to be chiropractors is, is kind of a, a little bit of a pet peeve here or a big issue for you guys. And yet we also are, you know, blur the lines. So chiropractors themselves. We do. Until recently in New York, we were not allowed to do massage. And there was a change in the license that actually listed massage in the state of New York as uh, something chiropractors are licensed to do. Prior to that, we did something we called soft tissue manipulation, which uh, if you looked at it uh, was essentially uh, similar or one might argue the same as massage. So very frequently these semantic changes allow people to do it. Massage therapists are not allowed to do adjusting. Chiropractors are the only ones who do adjusting, but they can do manipulation under their license, which you know, for many people is essentially the same intervention. Uh, the training, of course, is uh, grossly different, but uh, there's, a, there's a blurring in, in, uh, in the professions and uh, there's a lot of people doing a lot of things and calling it something else. Right. And that this was one of my favorite things that you said when we were talking about chiropractic care and, and just the practice here, because obviously both of these guys are local and, and uh, guys and gals are like guys just in the other term. But, you know, I'm not trying to pick any fights here. But anyway, <laughs> you, you folks are uh, both local. And the conversation that we had about chiropractic care, you said that there are two types of chiropractors in general terms. Can you tell me about that? Cause the, I thought this was not only like, you know, interesting, but also kind of funny, you know? Well, philosophically, the profession appears to be broken along two major lines. There are people who are ultra, uh, traditionalists who would feel that spine only hands only is chiropractic. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we endearingly call those in the profession, the straights. <laughs> uh, we have another group called the mixers who believe that uh, anything that increases uh, the body's functional ability to heal itself uh, and the state of New York or the state that you're practicing allows should be considered chiropractic. So all of us fall somewhere along that continuum and there is not one specific line between the two, but generally the schools and the practitioners tend to fall into one of those two camps. And regrettably, uh, you know, politically, we uh, are not as strong as we might be as a united profession because of this, this philosophical schism, if you will. Yeah, the, the schooling, as you mentioned, is there a, are there two different types of chiropractic schools that you can go to? Can you go to school to be a straight? Can you go to school to be a mixer? Or do you go to one school and then decide what kind of practice you're going to be? You go to one school, essentially. It mm -hmm. depends on the school that you get into. Some of the schools require less, um, less of an education. And because of the level of competition, or at least in the past when I went to school, the level of competition, there were schools that were considered Ivy League kind of chiropractic schools and others that 
were considered less optimal. And the schools that were less optimal tended to work more on the philosophy or teach more of the philosophy or the basic premise of chiropractic, which is essentially, you know, if the body is allowed to express itself through the nervous system, it has this innate opportunity and an innate intelligence to heal itself. And those schools tended to bring out chiropractors who were considered, in quotes, straight chiropractors. They weren't exposed to the amount of um, education or the amount of uh, lab diagnostics or clinical diagnostics that the, the more Ivy League type of chiropractic schools um, taught. So people who came out of the schools that were more... Um, involved in diagnostics and involved in clinical work tend to come out and to be the mixers. We have, I'm one of those people. I believe you are too, David. Correct. Yeah. We come out and we have more of an educational base. Therefore, we look at different things um, involved in the person's general health, not just a bone that's out of alignment in the body, but what other things will influence the body's total wellness. I just want to make a correction. Um, so first of all, there are two types of chiropractic colleges, um, ones that are accredited by the Council on Chiropractic Education, and um, those are the majority and there are smaller schools that come from an earlier background that are not accredited. So I'm going to speak to the accredited schools, which are the, the more common. In the accredited schools, the curriculums are exactly the same. So we all get the same education, but the stress is placed very, very differently. In Oregon, where I went to school, scope of practice was different. So in Oregon, chiropractors do obstetrics, gynecology, and minor surgery. As a result, I was required to do pelvic exam and pap smears on women, as opposed to another school where they would be taught pap smears and pelvic exams on a rubber model. So while the education was the same, the stress, depending upon which school you went to, could be very, very different. Got it. So now can an unaccredited graduate become licensed no and yes. In other words, in, in Pennsylvania, there is a school, as I understand it, that is a non-accredited school. And if you graduate from that school, you can be a licensed chiropractor in that one state. Yeah. However, they couldn't be licensed in New York State or most of the other states. Yeah. So there are small splinters. As chiropractic goes back more than 100 years, some of these schools have been around that long and as a result have been somewhat grandfathered in to the uh, licensing process, but they're very unusual. So the schools we're speaking about are the CCE accredited schools, and those have a curriculum that is identical, albeit the stress can be grossly different depending upon the philosophy of the school and the state that they're, uh, they're located in. Got it. So what are your, what's your opinion thought on the idea of an unaccredited graduate becoming licensed, even if it is in Pennsylvania where it's a little bit loosey-goosey? So first of all, I find that, that dangerous. I mean, to call themselves something other than a chiropractor, they might do, they might do healing that's much better than I do. I, mm -hmm. I'm not speaking to their abilities. I'm speaking to the problems associated. First of all, you want some sort of 
homogeneity when, in, in terms of education, if you go from one chiropractor to another. Of course. Um, and I think that the uh, rigors of licensing offer a protection uh, that one would not otherwise have. So, uh, but, you know, there are people who, I forget, there's, there's various, you know, s- semantic differences and they'll call themselves, the ones that call themselves, that they, they claim to adjust the ligaments, I forget what their name is. So to call yourself something different or to say, I'm not a chiropractor, but I do a chiropractic adjustment, I think may be accurate. I don't know how legal it is to, you know, accept money for that or to, you know, what, what the malpractice situation looks like. But um, I find it, you know, dangerous. I agree with David on a lot of that. And, um, and it's an unfortunate thing, but due to the discrepancy and the differences in scope of practice throughout the states, an educated consumer know, is the only one that would really, really know whether or not they're receiving the same level of chiropractic care from state to state. I have patients who come to me where, from Oregon, where the scope of practice, yes, indeed, is much broader than it is in New York, and expect me as a chiropractor to be able to do certain adjustments on them that in New York State, though I know how to do it, in New York State, I am not legally allowed to do. What's an example of that? Um, An internal coccyx adjustment, where you can literally go in and adjust the coccyx from the inside versus the outside. Leave that to Dr. Patel, the proctologist. You can leave it to him, yep. Let him do that all that Um, And he's very good at it. He's great. Very enthusiastic about it, too. I've never seen a happier proctologist in my life. He's very, just like, looking at gross butts all day. And just the happiest man on the planet. Yeah. And he has actually has one of the cleanest offices in of all course. of the medical professions in this area. Um, lovely man. So, the, so, again, the idea here is to kind of pick apart this stuff, help consumers understand this a little bit better. So, you were talking about something that gets criticized a ton, from the outside world uh, about chiropractic care, which is the innate stuff. The, um, uh, like the idea that now, again, I don't know much about it. I've just read, you know, skepticalraptor.com and all of those types of blogs that like to trash on supplements and chiropractors and stuff like that. And I hear about this. Can you explain that to me? So we're talking about the the selling of things in the office. Is that what you're? No, referring? we're talking about in here and I just think more the concept th- of innate innate yes innate exactly. intelligence, which is you know one of the fundamental underpinnings of the philosophy of chiropractic. Right, because the guy's name was D.D. Palmer. Right? Is that correct? And like that was his his thing is that there is basically an energy force called innate that um, like can be manipulated or read or, or modified. I don't know that that was how I would interpret it. So mm-hmm. I think we would all agree as, as we learn more that for the most part, the body has the ability to heal itself. Yeah. So anyone who's cut themselves knows that that's true. Mm-hmm. And you know what, what the D.D. Palmer had suggested was that was some innate intelligence of the body mm-hmm. to heal itself. And that there were impediments, mechanical impediments to the body, whereby if it was not functioning if the structure was not ideal, then the function would not be ideal. And if the function was not ideal, that it might impact on the body's ability to heal. And I think that that's not far-fetched. I think we all would agree that most of the healing that goes on in the body takes place as a result of the body's own 
innate intelligence on how to do that and that we disagree on how we w- might remove the impediments, whether we remove the impediments by killing the organisms that are attacking the body, whether we mo- remove the impediments by the addition of oxygen to a body that, that doesn't have enough oxygen, or by the ability to maximize the functional capabilities of the body so that it might heal itself. So I think that's more in keeping with, with the idea of innate. Right. So it, it is less of this mythical, mysterious, almost witchcrafty kind of thing to a more like, no, our body's good at this. Like that's what it's programmed to do. And we have to help it some way, whether, like you said, it's pharmaceuticals or some other thing. I mean, it's all structural changes. We're all changing the structure of the, at the cellular level all the way up. So, um, I can get behind that much more than I can get behind the the stuff that everybody likes to be negative about with uh, chiropractor care. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what had happened in the past, it's not as frequent as it is now since the changes in healthcare with um, have really made a difference in impact. Managed care has really impacted the chiropractic profession. But prior to that, what was happening is that when you went into a chiropractor's office, most chiropractors were very, very strong about talking about innate intelligence and talking about what we were doing when we were adjusting you. We were trying to highlight what was making us different than those who were practicing traditional medicine. And in that came this opposition, mainly from uh, traditional medicine as we see it, that we're working on this you know, elusive innate intelligence that chiropractors really aren't really doing anything and we're, you know, we're pontificating, we're talking about this innate intelligence when essentially what we're doing and the studies are coming out now is that we are stimulating and releasing nerves so that they can function in the body. For example, all of the studies that are coming out right now about the vagus nerve and how chiropractors, just by adjusting the neck, are actually freeing up and stimulating the vagus nerve so that the autonomic nervous system is functioning at a higher level. The vagus nerve goes all the way from, it's one of your cranial nerves, it goes all the way down into the gut, and that's the nerve that they're linking with gut immunity. So I think people understand that now, but when chiropractors started a hundred years ago when insurance wasn't paying for them and when chiropractors were fighting hard to be recognized, the information that they were given was considered quackery. It's not quackery. Now that the money is there and people are seeing that indeed chiropractic manipulation or spinal manipulation frees up the nervous system, allowing it to do what it needs to do on that level to heal the body. Completely agree with you. I think that just like with any discipline, though, you're going to have some jerks. And like within pharmacy, there's people getting into quackery bad information, all of that stuff. So what would you estimate, I guess, uh, a, a percentage of chiropractors that do engage in that less scientific, more almost voodoo type stuff than the, your interpretation of it as responsible practitioners? Well, first, if we accept the premise that um, a, a better aligned, a better functional body and nervous system would allow a body to heal and be healthier. So if we accept that basic premise, then some of these people who don't function well at a scientific level 
may still be doing as much good. Right. It's not the medicine, it's the spoon. One of my favorite quotes from one of my guests here is that sometimes, whatever, you know, the, the placebo works for people. Why take that away from them? But the question doesn't really pertain to the individual. And I really don't like to take stuff away from individuals. If somebody wants to take some weirdo supplement, my responsibility is just to make sure that they get a clean version of that supplement, you know? And so like homeopathy is something I don't not, not believe in. I, I, there's nothing scientific there and it's nothing I would recommend. And so there's individual practitioner recommendations, but more to the point that I'm trying to get at is that kind of blanket, like when we say people over 40 that have hypertension should use aspirin is because there's that clinical kind of uh, engrossing. That's where those recommendations come from, those broad recommendations. An individual, it may not be right for them to use aspirin, you know? So the difference between the that the recommendations based on consensus and evidence and then the working with the individual. So- so that's more what I'm getting to. Like, I understand that completely. But like, what do you think? Do you think it's a large portion of the population that uh, of the of chiropractors that kind of get into the wonky stuff? Or do you think it's... Again, defined wonky stuff. Well, yeah, I guess like, so, so telling people that um, there's mysterious, um, what she was kind of defining as quackery before, um, where the innate is this, this thing that exists in us versus it being just our body's innate ability to, to heal itself and, and moving towards homeostasis, you know? I don't think, um, I think you misinterpreted me. It wasn't chiropractors, nor do I think that I, I, I'm very much that there's an innate intelligence. There's, you know, we have something, you know, call it higher power, call it an innate intelligence, whatever it is that helps the body to heal itself and a chiropractic adjustment um, enhances the expression of your innate intelligence in whatever it does. I believe that the people who took it out there and carried it on and labeled it as quackery are people that were frightened that chiropractic would take away from their piece of the pie. So um, it's not about there being quacks out there. There are certainly people out there that should not be practicing, and that's on all levels. Um, I think that managed care has helped to filter those people out because essentially people, they're not, these chiropractors aren't making enough money to afford to stay in practice. But there are other, other chiropractors, licensed chiropractors, who have found other ways, even if it's a placebo effect, to heal their patients. Um, I think that that's the bottom line. You know, what are we doing as chiropractors with a chiropractic license uh, in, within the scope of practice of our states to help people to achieve their highest level of health? And that can be something just as sitting there now and not, be, not being, as I do in my practice, part of managed care. So I can sit there and talk to a patient for 15 minutes and find out that their problem may not actually be on a physical level, but that their pain is on a more of an emotional level. But because I listened and took a good history, um, I was able to help them to get well, in, my, in that case, to get pain-free. Right. I mean, essentially, all people who are in healthcare, in order to succeed in healthcare, are essentially licensed healers of some sort. I mean, we're healers at the bottom line. And what we bring in as our toolkit to heal um, is different between each of all, between all of us. I mean, in chiropractic, there is the art of chiropractic, which means that each chiropractor chooses how they're going to take the pressure or to 
to mobilize or to release the nervous system. That's the difference between the straights and the mixers. I mean, the, the, the goal of chiropractic is to get the nervous system to be open and to express itself freely, no matter how you do it, whether it's adjusting a foot or, you know, doing muscle work. You know, it's, it's how can we get the nervous system to express itself so it heals the body. And I'd like to turn the question around. So it's interesting that when we, what percentage of medical doctors do you think prescribe antibiotics without taking a culture and knowing whether it's... 20% uh, or more, yeah, okay. like a quarter, if but we not, don't, because we don't, they, just, they just don't have the spine, you know? But, but here's mm-hmm. the question I would ask you. Mm-hmm. Why don't we call them quacks? Well, we, we, don't, we don't, certainly don't use the term quack. We say that, you know, they're not behaving in a scientific manner. They're doing something that we've, we've seen is, is, is contraproductive. But we don't end up calling 20% of them quacks. And it's interesting that chiropractors who engage in activities that may not be well substantiated scientifically um, are, are labeled quacks immediately. And the whole profession gets uh, smeared with the same brush. Well, and, that, and that's exactly the point is that there are some people that are engaging in non-scientific practices. And so at the bottom line of all of this, like she said, there's evidence that doing X, Y, and Z will help, you know, and, and that's what we want to pursue is the idea of, of evidence. And there are people that make dumb decisions. Like I, I've watched plenty of chiropractor videos where they're yanking on necks. Like you've seen those horrible things on the internet and that's where they end up in the hospital and they're doing all the wrong things. And, and it's not the equivalent, but it's the equivalent of a doctor inappropriately prescribing antibiotics, you know, that same kind of, that same kind of malpractice more to the point of quackery. And so it's not like, but what I'm saying is, is that there are probably practitioners of chiropractic care, just like there are acupuncturists, pharmacists, whomever, you know, uh, that are engaging in non-scientific methods um, and basing their whole practice around that. And so, and, but I wouldn't say it's, it's like a big piece. And I was just wondering, do you feel like it's a big piece of the pie? You know, the idea of straights versus mixers, is that a 50, 50 mix? Or is it, do you think there's only a small amount of, uh, of, of those straights of the people that use scientific practices and tested methods and, and accredited education? Is that, is there a small percentage that may be healing people individually, um, but are, are kind of on the fringe of like what you would consider responsible or scientifically valid stuff. Well, that changes with time. So when I went to school, the common belief was that vitamins were a waste of money, that you just urinated them out. I kind of believe that they and, still are. And, uh, <laughs> all right, we can have that conversation. But I think there's, there's compelling evidence to suggest that a great deal of it yeah. uh, can be important and can be very helpful. Yeah. So, uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, you know, doctors laughed at the, the idea of taking vitamin D mm-hmm. and now they prescribe it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what you see as non-scientific now and unsubstantiated scientifically, we don't have the luxury of being able to see 10 years from now and say, oh, that yank on the neck, look what that really did. It really, so there's a lot of misinformation out there. The problem, of course, is that when somebody sees uh, somebody doing that on, on a YouTube video, <laughs> they, 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 they immediately say they're a quack. Yeah. And when somebody sees that iatrogenic deaths in hospitals are alarmingly high, nobody says the doctors in the hospitals are quacks. It's interesting that we have a double standard for regard to, with regard to what we uh, label quacks. I still don't feel like that's an equal parallel. I understand what you're trying to say, and I get it. There, are, there is the, the quackery there, but 
but mistakes and errors are different than just being a crappy practitioner, you know, um, or intentionally doing things that are, are inappropriate. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's, and that's kind of what I'm saying. So like, I don't want to, because I feel like somebody smarter than me could say, well, no, that technically those aren't the same things. Like the idea that, that there are errors that happen in hospitals isn't a result of quackery. It's a result of the human condition versus the people that are, are misinforming people or using again, non-scientific methods. Again, at the end of the day, somebody's being healed. And if they're licensed, then they're being held accountable too. So if they did something inappropriate, then hopefully the OPD would be on them and, and that would be that. So, so the idea here though, we're talking a lot about neck yanking and such. So we haven't really even gotten into yet the, the conversation of what exactly it is that that you're doing. And because one of the questions that I had here that people often say, when people say, don't use chiropractors, do this instead, they'll say, go to a physiologist or a PT or OT specialist versus a chiropractor. Um, so can we unpack that idea so that way people can feel better about that decision? Absolutely. Jeannie, you want to start? Um, every... What you just mentioned, physiologist, I don't know where they would use a physiologist, okay. Mm -hmm. um, physiatrists are used in a case, there are doctors that deal with sports medicine muscles and pain medication. Chiropractors in New York State are not allowed to give pain medication or inject. So therefore, that's out of the picture. If you're in something where your primary care doctor has suggested and you're listening um, strongly to go on that path because he wants you to have an injection or deal with your pain pharmaceutically, you must go to a physiatrist. Physical therapy and occupational therapy are two modalities, also people who are licensed, that deal with retraining your body on how to function after an injury or after surgery or after a stroke. What they do is they literally give you occupational therapy, OT, which is to reteach you, for example, how to, how to take a can out of the closet and open up a can of soup. Physical therapy. Or a can of whoop-ass. Or a can of, exactly. Mm -hmm. Dave or, can teach that. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> uh, physical therapy will teach you how to climb stairs after a knee replacement or how to balance yourself after you've had a major fall. Mm -hmm. Chiropractic does not delve that deeply into rehabilitation. Chiropractic, in its purest form, looks to keep the body in balance. That's its purest form, though in most cases it's used to treat pain conditions. Um, and what it does, again, is in evaluating the body. How are you moving? How are the bones of your spine moving? In restoring the motion to things that aren't moving in your body, things that are not naturally moving, not things that have been fixated by surgery or, you know, severe arthritis, in, re in helping to add mobility to your spine, it actually translates into total movement of your body and your nervous system, again, that innate intelligence or your nervous system, essentially just your nervous system, is able to communicate with and take information from your cells and to, to help your body to heal on a natural level. And with that comes a reduction in inflammation and comes pain relief. So pain relief is a secondary gain of chiropractic care. It's not the primary reason to go to a chiropractor. Mm -hmm. 
but it is in most cases now the primary reason to go to a chiropractor. So realize when, when I'm speaking, I'm speaking as a chiropractor who has chosen to specialize in musculoskeletal interventions. I find it confusing to try and substantiate some of the claims of chiropractic with regard to well-being. I can see it in the scientific model for it, albeit unproven at this time, but it's, it's, uh, it's too challenging and it's too much of a moving target. So let's talk about why most people go to chiropractors. They don't go because they want to be healthier. They don't go because they want to live longer. They go because they're in pain, the great majority of them. And uh, some chiropractors don't specialize in that. Some, some specialize in the treatment of children. Some specialize in the treatment of allergies. Everyone picks their, their own specialty and moves towards that. Um, but if we're looking at what generally people come for, they come for mechanical pain. Usually they come for mechanical pain in the spine, the neck, the upper back, and the low back, albeit chiropractors work on mechanical pain anywhere in the body, ankles, wrists, shoulders. Uh, that being said, their concern is how do you get rid of the pain and how do I get out of here and not be a patient as quickly as possible? <laughs> So those are two things that we address and we address well. And people go to chiropractors not because their medical doctor suggested it, although now they do, but because somebody else said, boy, my back, I had the same thing. And I went to a chiropractor and it was like three treatments and I was all better. So we do have literature that is published with regard to workers' compensation injuries, things of that. And we know that, that chiropractic and manipulation in general, which is done by people other than chiropractors, uh, is a very viable intervention for mechanical pain in the body. And that's why people come and, you know, for the most part, um, the rest of this is, is sort of the outlying area of what we do. And I think there's great benefit for health. I think we do a lot of nutritional work. But I think, you know, the, the primary people listening now want to know, how do I get rid of pain? And then how do I stop paying for it and get out of the office? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've never been to a chiropractor and I wouldn't even know where to start. So when you say manipulation, literally, what is it that you're doing with your hands on somebody? Like, are you taking somebody's uh, leg and kind of wiggling around? What do, you, what do you got going on? Like, uh, explain it for the dummies like me. So someone comes in with lower back pain. Sure. So the first thing we do is we take a complete history. Mm -hmm. We want to know how it started, where it started, what kind of surgeries they've had, what kind of other underlying medical conditions. Uh, we want to take a full history so we get a full appreciation as to what may be impacting on this. Do they have diabetes? Did they fall down a flight of stairs and have three fractures 20 years ago? All of these are important. We would then do a neurologic and orthopedic workup. And we would use the same exact tests that every orthopedist or medical doctor should be using and, and um, frequently, of course, does use. So these are standard tests. They're not chiropractic tests. They're not medical tests. They're just tests that have come through the uh, physical medicine community. Having done that, we would try and establish what the problem is. We might order a diagnostic study. We would send the patient out for an x-ray, an MRI, perhaps blood work if we thought there was some sort of component. Then once we established what it is that the problem was, we would look to see what mechanical intervention we might be able to do. Uh, and as a result of that, 
We might look to mobilize areas that weren't moving properly. I think that makes a lot of sense. We would look to reduce inflammation. We might do that through physical therapy or more accurately physical medicine modalities such as ultrasound or uh, hot or cold or uh, traction. So we would do that. And then we would attempt to manipulate the spine so that it was moving better or more normally and had better alignment. And the result of that is the patient gets up and says, I feel better or I don't. And that's the bottom line. Right. How often do you see uh, it didn't help me or made it worse? Certainly anything that can make you better is powerful enough to make you worse. Especially with backs, man. Not necessarily, especially with backs. Really? I think that I think that there are, you know, certainly medications. You don't pull one of your medications and read the uh, side effects, uh, you know, possible Well, it's actually side kind of funny because we just had, uh, I had on one of my um, mentors and coworkers. Uh, he's a pain specialist, actually. So he deals with other stuff. And I, I told him that our biology teacher, first lesson, first day, said three things about drugs. They don't work. They're no good for you and they don't do one thing. And like that philosophy and like if you dig into all of that, you know, it's just like, a, you know, a, a quirky way to say that the properties of drugs that, yeah, there's there's risks and there's there's possible problems with all of this stuff. Right. But like, I, I guess the thing is that I was more saying like, um, how often do patients uh, quit chiropractic care because they feel like it hasn't done anything for them. Like I, I'll treat people with supplements and they'll say it didn't do anything and they'll never use supplements again. I know? hear what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So let me, let me reframe that to suggest that chiropractic is the most utilized alternative medicine, uh, profession, uh, in the world. Yeah. People are not going to us because they're getting worse or because they're not getting better. Mm -hmm. Boom. Boom. So you mentioned nutrition. So there's other stuff that chiropractors are known for, which is, you know, so Jeannie's got that, that expertise. She's a, a nurse as well. So she's gotten the full range of, of healthcare, um, like mind for this whole thing, right? So you're doing a very unique um, practice with what you do. But in general, a lot of people know that chiropractors will, will do a holistic model. And they'll try to talk about all the things that could be contributing to your joint pain, all the things that could be contributing to your problems. Um, so we talked about nutrition and I know your pet peeve is the stuff that people sell. So I want to get into that. So how much of a part of a successful chiropractor's business is around holistic care, not just the manipulations and such? Is that because you were just going through like what your, your intake is and that seemed to be a large chunk of not touching somebody. And so is that, typical for a chiropractic practice is that just a lot of discussion, very little manipulation, or is it, is that unique to you? Um, again, as, as David brought up before, things have a lot to do with um, history of chiropractic and where things have gone. In, I would say somewhere between 1990 and 1997, <coughs> I had a very, very strong um, nutritional practice. Okay. And what ended up happening in that period of time is larger pharmacies started to open and the companies that I used to use for my supplementation who sub supplied me with my supplements started selling the supplements for much less than chiropractors of were course. able to do it. So there was no reason for me to do um, a, a large or a strong nutritional analysis as part of my patient's care. And it changed how my practice functioned. Um, I believe that nutrition is a very, very strong part of any practice in 
New York right now anywhere. Most of the people that I deal with take between 5 and 35 supplements on a daily basis. I ask them what their supplements are. In a lot of cases, I ask them why they take it. That's at my first intake visit. And then I don't touch their supplements again. Um, I just don't have the um, up-to-date knowledge about it. And I work with this phenomenal pharmacist. Um, And there are people out there who have a lot more information about what the current trends are. But I do believe that there are certain things that my patients take that do interfere with their health. If they're taking a probiotic but not taking a prebiotic, if they're taking 5,000 international units of vitamin D without ever having their vitamin D levels taken. Those are the things that I'll counsel them on, Mm -hmm. but I don't use a lot of nutrition. I think that what happens in today's chiropractic practices, as in today's medical practices, is that a lot of other things are brought into the practice in order to offset the decline in um, income. Yeah. Of healthcare workers. It's probably the most horrible thing in, that we're seeing right now that you have a whole lot of professionals out there who are well educated, who came out thinking that they'd be able to make a nice living and be their own bosses. And they're being, all of their decisions are being determined by somebody who has never walked through a, or taken a medical course at any level. So you have a lot of chiropractors, you have a lot of dentists, and you have a lot of doctors yeah. and who are selling things and suggesting things and including um, evaluations for things that are different than their what they're licensed to do. Yes, you know, certainly they will help their patients. For example, somebody comes into my office who has severe low back pain, and I think that they need a back support. I do have a back support in my office to give them, so they're walking out with something, but I certainly, you know, I don't have therapeutic neck pillows and I don't have supplements anymore. I I shouldn't say that I do have a couple of supplements and most of them are for that instantaneous, uh, you know, relief for pain when they're coming in or an inflammation reducers that are natural. Well, that in compliance, you know, most people, if you say do this, they, they really won't. And one kind of interesting thing, just to kind of keep the supplements in, in the conversation how many people, when you ask them what they take a supplement for, will say, I have no idea? <laughs> Most of them. Most of them. Yeah, I, I read it on the, the internet. Somebody told me to take it. In a lot of my cases, because of my nursing background, I also do, I compare their supplements to their the medication that they're taking. You would be shocked. And that's the only time I do give advice where I'll say, you shouldn't be taking this with this. You need to call your primary care doctor. Is he aware that you're taking it? Because in many cases, a lot of my patients don't recognize (laughs) that their supplements actually interfere. They're actually pharmaceuticals on a certain level. They are. um, And that they would interfere with their health or interfere with the medications that they're taking. So that's that's a little different part of my practice. That's that's where my practice differs from David somewhat, is that I bring in a lot of my nursing. And I always have. In the 30 years that I've been in practice, it's the reason why I have a very, very, you know, strong family-based practice. Because I can come in, and many times I was the person who was the first line for the baby that had the ear infection, they were able to come in, I was able to make a determination, and I was able to triage them to the proper place to go. Right. 
that's a, a big skill set. And that's what, what rounds it out here. And again, both of you guys have that unique uh, expertise and background. That's why I wanted you both here. So David, what's your thought on this nutrition part of the gig? You know, I've, uh, as I've mentioned, I have a biomechanical practice and to be really skilled at one thing is a challenge. So when I find a patient who really needs uh, in-depth nutritional work, I send them to a nutritionist so that uh, they can have the benefit of working with somebody where that's their one primary you know, field of, of expertise. Uh, clearly, there are a couple of supplements that I use myself because I believe in them. Uh, occasionally, I will suggest that to patients. Uh, but other than that, we, uh, we, we, don't, we don't make or sell uh, a great deal of, of supplements, albeit we believe in them strongly as I, as, as, as I do. And, uh, but I believe in sending them out to somebody who's better skilled at that than myself. Right. And you guys are bringing up the idea of skill and, and that requirement, but the interesting thing, and this is something that I struggle with, especially now as like my practice is shifting towards education of other practitioners is the idea that, and you know, pharmacy has always been in this weird position. We're medical practitioners, but we're retail. So people would come to us for advice and then we would say, this is my recommendation. And so then when you add the supplement component to, which is obviously higher margin, there's, it's, there's a, a reason that supplements are in most stores. It's not normally to begin with for that holistic care. It's because they're trying to, you know, keep the, uh, the wolves at bay as well. And, and they are making recommendations towards products and, and it's a weird thing because it's like, do you really stand behind that product? So the, the, the question of the pharmacist trust gets, you know, thrown in the mix because is it really about the product or is it about you just trying to save your business? And, and can I find something cheaper elsewhere and that kind of a thing? So, so your pet peeve is the idea that people are using supplements as just a way to fill their coffers versus using it as a strategy for management. You can't be good at everything. Mm -hmm. And you can't provide the best care if you have gotten so thin, you know, and you're looking to sell your products as well as give care, as well as bill insurance companies, as well as to have a volume so that you're making your overhead. Um, and so I agree with David. I refer out um, for things like that. But there are a lot of chiropractors, and now from what I'm seeing up here, there are a lot of medical people who will use those that 15 minutes of time to kind of say to somebody, oh, you don't need that medication. Try some echinacea and golden seal. Yeah. And the person comes into your office, and they obviously have, it's the one time that an antibiotic may have been necessary. So you're seeing, as, as far as supplementation helping, it's a good adjunct but you need to really make sure that um, a, a complete history is done. It's another thing that just can't be right. done without having a complete history done of the patient. That you know, in medical school, in chiropractic school, nursing school, one of the things you learn is that the history is the most important part of any exam you do on a patient. It provides you, if you listen well, with the most information you will ever need. And what's happening is that I'm finding that supplements, even in the places, even in the functional medicine practices, are cookbook. Here, you're coming in with chronic fatigue syndrome. These are the supplements you take for that. Here, go to my counter. My receptionist will give you the $1,800 worth of supplements. There's not, again, it's like anything else. 
it's being overused and it's being abused and it's not being looked at because no one looks at supplementation as a prescription medication. Right. Uh, so one more thought on supplements before we move ahead. The education around supplementation and nutri- nutrition, is that a part of the accredited uh, curriculum or is that not? Like, where did you learn about supplements? Where do most chiropractors learn about supplements? At my school, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look for the actual hours that were spent on nutrition. Because we don't get it. We don't get We, were, we had we, it in our biochemistry course. Yeah, it was it brought was, in on the biochemistry course Supplements and nutrition. Oh, yeah. Did. And very, very, I mean, heavily. Heavily. Yeah. And uh, with, with, the scienti- with the supporting data that was available. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, it, was, it was really greatly stressed. And most chiropractors, uh, it would surprise me to find chiropractors who weren't taking supplements themselves. So we, we drink. We drink the Kool-Aid, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, everybody has heard me beat to death the idea that they can work as long as they're done right. So, and that's a big gap. My, my bigger point is that most training around supplements comes from the supplement manufacturers themselves uh, in the industry from top to bottom. The guys working at Whole Foods all the way up to the best practitioners, most of that education is coming. Just like in the pharmaceutical industry, we hate so much to hear that the Depakote rep is teaching everybody about Depakote, you know, that, uh, but that's what happens. And um, so it's good to hear that you guys are getting education around nutrition. We aren't, like we had very little uh, education around that. Traditional uh, physicians, definitely little, so. See, we don't have the benefit of detail men or detail women coming in Mm -hmm. to sell us supplements. So we really learn it in school. Mm -hmm. And those of us who have an interest either for ourselves or our patients, you know, pursue the science very vigorously. That's really interesting. I figured that they would use you guys. They would like scope you out because there are detail men in supplements big, big time, uh, especially the practitioner only lens. And, and we get hit all the time and I, they don't come here anymore because I'm just sick of their nonsense. But like that, that happens, you know, they buy lunch and buy dinner, they buy a trip and then changes your whole, there's stuff on our shelves from past years where uh, it was only brought in because of a lunch or a dinner. You know, and like the the point of 2020 is to weed all that crap out once and for all, you know, but, you know, the idea that it's immune to all of that um, is kind of silly. There are two chiropractic techniques in particular that I can think about, SOT <coughs> and applied kinesiology, where supplementation is an integral part of those techniques. And if you take certification, if you get certification, you can get certification or advanced degrees in other areas. I have a degree in sports medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you take, there are two particular, again, applied kinesiology and craniosacral or sacro-occipital technique, where during that particular 300-hour coursework, where nutrition is also stressed very, very highly. And it's at that point that you'll get various chiropractors who work with supplementation companies that come in and talk about supplementation and how it is introduced into this technique. What I'd like to do to kind of close out here is when a person's picking a practitioner to work with, they're, they normally do it like they're buying a dinner on vacation or going to a hotel room on vacation. They look at reviews, they do the word of mouth thing, and they normally aren't doing the vetting that they should be doing to ensure that they're going to somebody that won't hurt them or won't you know get involved in in bad practices, right? Uh, we, so what kinds of tips could you give somebody when they're out there looking to potentially 
use chiropractic care to not get the YouTube guy that's going to end up jerking on their neck? First thing I would say is, are you comfortable with a male or a female? Because there are times during chiropractic care where you're going to feel uncomfortable or maybe not uncomfortable being touched. So do you want a male or a female? The next thing I would look at, and is a it's a major part of consumer use of medical people, is who is on your plan? Mm-hmm. Is there somebody that's on your plan? And I would... I would not assume when you make the phone call to make an appointment with somebody who might be close to you or far away from you, do not assume that they're on your plan anymore. A lot of the healthcare plans gather chiropractors and never eliminate those people who are no longer participating in the plan. So they walk into the office and they're told at that point in time that they're not, you know, that the doctor is not participating in their plan and they're given a nice bill for $150. Look at the number of years the person has been in practice. Um, look at the office. Where's the office located? Is it convenient for you? Um, does the office look like something that's maintained? A chiropractor who is doing well will maintain their space. Um, when you call the office, do you like the receptionist? She's always the person or he is always the person you're going to be dealing with. Um, those are the most important things. I always say to people, go with word of mouth. That's your first best bet. If your friend is your friend, you have a lot of similar characteristics to your friends. And your friend, if your friend likes somebody, they're probably going to like somebody. You're probably going to like that person. Um, after that, there are too many different things out there. Who does distraction? Who does um, craniosacral work? Who does acupuncture? Who only does this particular technique? I would say try to, try to get yourself a chiropractor who doesn't say that they're only specific to one technique it's too limiting um and i would just go you know you you can most people know if they really listen that whether the chiropractor is going to be right for them just by calling the office mm-hmm. anything to add yes i think the most important thing is to speak with other people who have had a good experience it always amazes me you know i'm i'm old enough to remember when you know people found you through the uh, phone book what, what's a phone book that's exactly what i expected um and it, it's it i would shake my head and you know in disbelief you know that that someone would go to somebody with the first ad or the biggest ad most of us spend a great deal of money to make sure that our websites are uh shine favorably on us but if I could make one recommendation, which is what I tell my patients when they're going, when they say, I'm, I'm going to live in Florida, how do I find a chiropractor? Ask your neighbors. They're going to know who has a good reputation in the community. Um, ask your workmates, you know. Um, I think there is value in looking at reviews. I know that, you know, it's helped me with restaurants or Airbnb, you know, or, <laughs> yes. or, or even businesses, you know. Mm-hmm. So there is, there is something to be said for looking at the reviews online. But I would say foremost, everyone has friends, you know, at a new place. Everyone's friends have gone, have, will know who the chiropractor is, who the chiropractors are, who specializes in what. So if you can get a word of mouth referral, I think that's so much more important because all of us have a, an education and most people won't have the skills to be able to understand the differences between some of the techniques that we listed on the 
website. So uh, I would go with that. It's kind of interesting that neither of you said to make sure that it's a real chiropractor, not one of these phonies that we were talking about at the beginning that we're doing chiropractic level stuff. So is there like, is, is that, is that just a default? You would just be like, yeah, of course you want to make sure that they're licensed. As a they're, chiropractor. They're, yeah. And that, okay. I think to look uh, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with looking up the, you know, the history on any of your doctors to see if mm -hmm. there's been, you know, malpractice to see if there's been, uh, you know, administrative actions. I think that that's good, but for the most part, those smaller clinicians who are, are doing manipulation are, are, are very few. I mean, it's annoying, but there, there are very few. So we have the biggest skeptic ever listening to us right now about chiropractic care. You're not going to convince everybody, of course, but do you, is there anything that you would want to say to that skeptic? Yes. I mean, I continually run less so now. In 84, in when I went into practice, there were medical doctors in this area who would not treat you if you went to a chiropractor. They would ask you to leave the practice. And I would call them and I would, I would say to these doctors what I would say to anybody. I would say, have you, have you ever had a chiropractic treatment? And they would say no. I said, have you ever been to a chiropractic office? And they would say no. And I would say, have you ever been to a chiropractic college? And they would say no. So um, it's amazing to see the skepticism out of people who have absolutely no understanding of what it is. So if you're curious, you can go visit a chiropractic office. You know, you can speak with the chiropractor. It's, it's, uh, we're, 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 we're approachable. Uh, we're a lot easier to get to than your medical doctor, and we'd be happy to speak with you. So if you're a skeptic, I would ask that you just come and serve what we do. You know, take a look at the education before you make your decision. I could not have said it better. <laughs> Thank you both for coming on here and having a discussion about chiropractic care. I appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I want to thank my guests for stopping in to chat and do the tough talk thing about chiropractic care. If you want to connect with our guests, here's how. Dr. David Rosenblum's website is woodstockchiropractic.com. Chiropractic is C-H-I-R-O-P-R-A-C-T-I-C.com. Call his office at 845-679-2225. Dr. Jeannie Tartell's got a book, Get Fit in Bed. You know, it's got a different set of instructions than what I would hope for, you know. I was hoping it was either lay down and do nothing or some of the like more PG-13 R-rated stuff, you know, but neither one of those are, are true, but it's still a great book. Anyway, check it out. Jeannie Tartell at gmail.com is how you get in touch with her. G-E-N-I-E-T-A-R-T-E-L-L. -L. Now it's time for my food story. All right. I know that we're supposed to be resolutioning now, and I in particular, should be shaving down the ice if I'm going to be on Instagram and doing videos and stuff, especially after my messy holiday season of calorie consumption. But it's not my fault this time, I swear. <laughs> I blame my friends exclusively. Well, not exclusively, because I also blame the Culinary Institute of America, which is unfortunately close to me in Woodstock here. I know we're all supposed to be adults at this point in our lives, but I'm totally giving into peer pressure and it's their fault. So anyway, so the Culinary Institute had a beefsteak event. If you've never seen these, this is just, you know, gluttony is the goal. You just eat way too much and it's almost all meat. I think I saw three carrots the entire night and they were like the baby carrots and I think they were there for just directions. And I apologize in advance to any vegans or vegetarians. I'm not trying to be gross. I'm just kind of saying that this happened. <laughs> so anyway, so there are 13 dishes of different meats, sliders, lamb, short ribs, shrimps, oyster, all sorts of fun stuff. And then they have this massive plate of beautifully cooked steak that they marched out to the Imperial March from Star Wars. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're eating all this stuff and they're, they're teaching us things. They're teaching us that 
the American steakhouse menu basically derived from these events that used to happen a lot more, but then kind of waned over time. So the plates are endless. So it's 13 different types of plates, but we kept reordering sliders. And, you know, so it was like an eating contest. And that's how I went into it. I'm like, this is going to be an eating contest. I'm here. I need to impress my friends. They see a skinny dude. And uh, this is my first time going, I need to really kind of man up here and show them that I can put it down. So I felt like when I was done, as if I had just ate the most indulgent Thanksgiving ever, waited 20 minutes and then had a normal overindulgent Thanksgiving dinner. It kind of felt like, and I probably looked like a snake that ate a goat. (laughs) Yeah. And again, so another little side, I know this sounds all pretty privileged. Like, oh my God, you pay a bunch of money to go to this fancy restaurant and you get to eat abundantly when there's people starving. I was wrestling with it and I was like, it was a tough time for me, but I still did it. Yeah. So I understand that too. So I'm telling you this overindulgent story that is misdirected willpower (laughs) because I definitely use my willpower to shove the food down my face instead of avoiding it. And it was just basic grossness. I'm telling you all of this to air my guilt and my shame for all of it, but to teach you something because we all overeat. And in fact, many of my patients that are on nutritional plans will ask me what to do if they overeat. We're going to a birthday party. Holidays are coming. What do I do? What's the plan? So I wanted to kind of talk about that because I had to implement it a little bit myself. So here's a few thoughts. First and foremost, overeating on just a single day can completely wipe out your work from the past week. So if you're trying to do a one pound a week weight loss, you're cutting out about 500 calories a day. Most people can do that if they're on my nutrition plans because you're pretty satiated during the day. But some people are white knuckling it, especially at the beginning. And you don't want a single moment of peer pressure or indiscretion to erase all of that work, right? So that's just one thing to think about. The second thing is right along that tangent, but once you overeat, you've completely derailed the train. So you have that little taste of sugar and forget about it. Now you're fiending for it. So one day of excess to celebrate or let loose, and then it turns into your weekend is now blown to pieces. And it's just another reason to not do it. So avoid overeating when you can. If you can control it, make sure that you are actually controlling it. And then what do we do if we actually overeat? You can take it as a loss. (laughs) You take the L, do a march of shame, and then try again next week. But I'd prefer to teach you a strategy here. So first, we have to know approximately how many calories we overconsumed. And with calories, they're all estimates. So make sure you always lean conservative here. Overestimate those numbers as much as you can. So the strategy, I think, instead of just starving yourself the next day after you overeat and consume all these calories to try to make up for that excess calories that were consumed, it's best to just kind of spread it out over five to seven days. That way you're you're taking the pressure off. You still need to eat. You're not going to sacrifice anything. You're not going to throw yourself off. You're not going to create, you know, this kind of negative vortex where because you, you overate, you're starving yourself, but then you're hungry and you start making bad choices. So it's just best to just kind of stretch it out as long as you can. So again, if, if you overeat by about 2000 calories, which is very possible, if you eat a blooming onion, I think that's 4000 calories. Don't eat a blooming onion ever. But 2,000 calories over seven days is about 300 a day. And that's totally feasible. You can definitely reduce by 300 calories a day without much effort. And in fact, if you're already trying to lose weight and you need to add just 300 more calories, it's not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. 
So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke on the podcast here about shakes. We use shakes or smoothies preferably as low calorie meal replacements. And that's very easy to do. So you just plug in an extra smoothie once during the day. And there you go. You, you've now corrected your ship's course. So for me, I had no business eating breakfast. In fact, I had no business eating breakfast, lunch, dinner, or even snacks the next day. In fact, I was so full that I barely did. But one interesting little tidbit, again, about nutrition, I teach people is that when I tell someone to make a healthy meal, I teach them the campfire methodology covered in my Eat to Feel Your Fire blog. In it, I say we have to make an optimally sized fire that burns over the two to three hour period that our nutrients you know, are optimized to give us energy for. The thing is, is if you build a bonfire, it's not going to burn very much longer than that optimized time. You know, you eat Thanksgiving and a few hours later, you're ready to eat again. You eat like a madman at the Culinary Institute and the next morning you're ready for breakfast despite having just ingested enough calories for probably a week. So I technically could have eaten, but I decided to, you know, not. And I think that was the wise decision for me. And, and yes, this week I'm ripping way back on my caloric intake. Plus I'm adding a little extra cardio to my week because I have to correct course too. And I'm not going to have a healthy average calorie intake this whole week. And that's how you should think about it. What is your average calorie intake? Are we lowering that average or are we increasing that average even with our excessive intake? So these are my sins, and I'm glad that I can confess them to you. Remember, this is totally normal. I wanted to tell the story, one, because it's funny, two, because it teaches a lesson, but three, to help you realize all these people out here in social media land and in podcasts talking about health and wellness, they all have the same problems that we do. They overeat. They eat the wrong things. They make bad choices. They're not eating these pristine diets all the time. And if they are, or if they say they are, they're lying, or if they are, then they're nerds, and we don't like them anyway. So... I would just say make sure that you don't believe that the media makes you think that doing so means that you're a bad person or you're never going to be successful or you're never going to lose weight. You are. We just need to stick to a better script. So that's it for this week. Visit drneilsmoller.com to see what I'm working on, listen to the other podcast episodes, and even learn a little bit about Supplement School, my new little program. You're going to enjoy it. Until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and be well. Be well.